Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who've achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who have just had a really interesting life. If you're looking for inspiration for your career, if you feel a little stuck or bored with what you're doing right now, or if you're in search of the road less travelled job-wise, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. And guys, today is our 50th episode. When I started this podcast last August, I'm not going to lie, I wasn't really sure what was going to happen with it, where it was going to go and how long it would last. I had a dream that I could make something useful, entertaining or meaningful. And the feedback I get from you guys is definitely what keeps me going. I'll be very honest, there have been times over the last few months when I've thought that it would be lovely to have the time I spend on this to relax on the couch, to read some more books or to head out for a run. But when I think about quitting, I also think about the reasons why I started and I am still really motivated by those same aims. So we're here to stay and here's to the next 50 episodes. I'm also so pleased that for this milestone, I'm joined by a woman that I am honoured to call a friend, someone that I've known for a very long time and whose career has taken a number of twists and turns with huge success along the way. Emma Mosey grew up with me in Cheshire and considered herself to be a country girl, although as she herself will tell you, that might be slightly open to debate. After studying English at the University of Edinburgh and a Master's in Creative Writing at Royal Holloway in London, her first novel, How to Be a Good Wife, was published in 2013 to significant critical acclaim, including garnering praise from Dame Hilary Mantel, who regarded it as, quotes, an accomplished debut from a writer who shows insight and emotional power. But since the publication of her second novel, The Last Photograph, in 2016, Emma's career has taken a very distinct swerve. Having never been to what she refers to as a real farm before meeting her in-laws, and unused to the vagaries of a life in the agricultural sector, Emma has now, for the time being at least, put down her pen and donned her wellies. She is now the co-owner of a free-range poultry farm, where her 6,000 happy hens lay eggs to be sold in the farm shop she runs with her husband Ben, and will soon be cooked into dishes in the first egg-scented restaurant on an egg-producing farm that the country has ever seen. It's been quite the fortnight for her too. Last week, Emma and her team won three awards, including Best Rural Retail Business and Best Farm Shop, and this week she spoke at the Women in Farming conference on her transition to farming life. I never predicted this, she says of her career, which is just the way we like it on this podcast. Emma is forging an unusual path, and I was really excited to chat to her about how you get published, how you write a bestseller, and how you make a leap into the unknown. Um, So do you want to just tell me, Em, to start with a little bit about what you wanted to be when you grew up and how you came to the idea of wanting to pursue writing for your career? So when I was about 16 or 17, so at school, I wanted to be an actress, um I did and not know that about you yeah I I had this this dream of being like famous and um and really getting into kind of the mind of different characters and things like that and then I did AS theatre studies and realized that I was pretty terrible at acting 
um, because I'm not naturally extroverted and I found it excruciating to kind of be out of your comfort zone in front of an audience, even if it was just a small group of the fifth studies people and have to kind of not make a fool of yourself, but take yourself out of your comfort zone and, and be someone else. And I quite quickly realised that what had always been the no brainer for me to do was to pursue reading and writing. And that's what I'd always loved. And it was, I was kind of getting that confused with acting. And the reason why I ended up wanting to be a writer was because it's basically the same, a similar thing to getting into the mind of people and trying to work out their motivations, except it's not done excruciatingly in front of an audience. It's done in, in a room where I can just, you know, focus on it and get better, better at it slowly without having to show anyone until I'm ready. Indeed. And and had you always been a kind of bookish person? Like had you always loved reading, always been into books ever since you were quite little? Yeah, I'd always I'd always been a big reader. Um, my parents say that I was quite an early reader as well. Um, I, do, I, do, I think I still do this now, even though we're super busy with everything else. I, I read to relax. I've always done that. It's just an escape. Um, I can't not do it um even when we're really busy like it's something that that I need to do in the evening or not every evening obviously but and I do go through different stages of reading a lot and then not reading much um but I do find it's a real it's a way that I process the world world and writing is even more so a way that I process everything that's going on around me Mm, it's such a lovely um I was going to say habit to have that but actually it's when you describe it as a need I find that really wonderful because I think a lot of people have time to read books when they're younger and they have to read books when they're at school and then they get out of the habit of reading. And I'm someone who adored reading when I was younger. Like I used to chow through books and now it's the first thing that drops when I get busy. And and actually I think making that a priority for yourself as a form of relaxation is is really special and actually is something that I kind of wish that I was able to do and, and or more like just did you know it's funny isn't it though because we're so busy and and I find that one of my favorite things to do is to take a book and my laptop just in case I want to do some writing and go to a coffee shop for e- even if it's just 15 minutes or 15 or 20 minutes it's just like a complete switch off and it's something for me and I'm getting better at like taking that time and making sure that I do do those things for me um, because I think and I, I think this is partly a female thing not to be really gender gendered about it but I think that we try and do so much and we feel guilty if we if we do take time for ourselves or we take take time to do what we need to do whether it's exercise or reading or all, the, all those things um and I think we, I've I've definitely learned since we've been here um and we've been really busy with stuff that if I don't do that then it doesn't help anybody including the people that are around me because I end up getting really grumpy uh, so I've learned that if I don't go off and do that then um, I'm not really myself so you need to keep that identity don't you but then it's it's tricky because I think we're so busy 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 all the time aren't we well yeah but I think looking after your own kind of mental health is is different the way people do that is different for different people and actually if reading is your thing you know for some people it's exercise and some people it's um, music or whatever then you know reading is your way of relaxing your mind and you know kind of a form of meditation I suppose or whatever mm. then that's it's really important to embrace that isn't exactly. it um so you and I obviously disappeared up to Scotland at the same time um and you studied English yep. at Edinburgh Uni um how did you then pursue writing because there are an awful lot of people out there um who 
want to write a book you know it's one of those things that loads of people say I'm going to write a novel how did you actually go through making that a kind of systematic priority and getting to the point where you thought that that was a realistic job prospect for you so until I got to Edinburgh I hadn't actually done that much writing um at all and even when I was at Edinburgh uh until kind of my third year when I actually did some creative writing modules I hadn't done very much writing but I I, I still would say to people if they asked me what I wanted to do I would say I wanted to be a writer and they would say oh so what do you write now and I would say nothing I just know I want to be a writer which is kind of weird looking back on it um but I started writing on the creative writing modules and then and I knew I wanted to pursue writing so I applied for a creative writing master's um after uni um and I looked at lots of different ones but I chose the one at Royal Holloway because Andrew Motion was still there and it was still I think he was still poet laureate at that point so um I had kind of a bit of a brain crush on him so I thought I'd kind of go down and um and apply for that one I'm just going to jump in to add a little context here the Masters in Creative Writing that Emma casually mentions was well recognised at the time as being one of the best programmes in the world. It was led and taught by Andrew Motion, who was at the time the Poet Laureate in the UK, essentially the National Poet in Residence appointed by the Queen. And the success of those who've come out of this course is quite remarkable. It was it was either that one or East Anglia that were the the best ones when I was applying um, and I chose Royal Holloway because of Andrew Motion but also because I wanted to live in London. And you were working for a literary agency around that time as well Em is that right? Yeah so I did work experience at Toby ED Associates which is a literary agency um, in central London Um, so I did that during uni holidays and stuff Um, again because well for two reasons the first reason was that if i wasn't successful as a writer I wanted to work in publishing and the second reason was that I thought that if they met me and I had a bit of a foot in the door they'd be more likely to read my stuff which did end up being true um I never told them that obviously um but yeah they I mean after I'd worked there for quite a long time when I did my master's and stuff because I worked part-time there while I was doing my master's um they knew I was doing a master's and asked to see my novel once I'd finished it which was a bit further along than that Mm. and so you started writing your first novel um how to be a good wife while you were right while you were doing your master's and I remember you telling me about um some of the ways in which you exposed pieces of your writing to other people in the group how do you learn to take on board other people's criticism of something that inevitably becomes very personal and very all-consuming in your life I think I mean it's terrifying at the beginning I, I remember like mm, the, I first, the first few times <laughs> I did it it's like jumping off a cliff, a cliff in a way you send it off and it was all sent off electronically obviously via email so you just send it off and you'd be like oh my god I can't believe I've just sent that and then you'd like you'd I'd always be like super ap- apprehensive about the the meeting when we were discussing mine but then it's such a buzz when people are giving you feedback even if it's not positive feedback um I think it's the same with en- any area where you're out of your comfort zone. Um, it's that feeling of like, I can't believe that I'm doing this, but at the same time, this is the best way for me to improve. Um, and you learn to see that criticism as a really good thing. And in fact, because writing's so solitary, um, once you get more, once you get to the point where you're published and things, um, or even when you've got an agent, that that other person that you trust that gives you feedback becomes so important and so valuable and without them I mean it's amazing how much how much it's a collaborative 
thing really um when, once you're actually working with with someone further along the line because they they they're the only one that sees it and they give you feedback and then you go away and do the work obviously but without that feedback you'd just be shouting into a into a cave with no answer um so it's really it's a relief to get feedback once once you get um more further along but when when you first start it's absolutely terrifying I had a really tight-knit um, master's group, um, so there were eight of us. Yeah, it's a group of people that – it's that funny thing where you really need to be able to trust those people, um, and it is like a bit of a circle of trust because you're really sharing the, you know, new stuff or stuff that you haven't done before, and you need to be able to get feedback and honest feedback, but you also need to be able to give it. And I think that can be tricky when you're a group of peers that are all trying to do the same thing, which is get a novel published, but it seemed to work in our group. I wouldn't say that there's never – competitiveness there but because there is but that that's just part and parcel of being in a group where you're all trying to do the same thing Mm, it's very exposing that isn't it like you're kind of putting out your sort of innermost thoughts and and ideas which actually releasing those to other people within the world especially at the beginning when that group is new people that you don't know very well is incredibly exposing and it's almost yeah. kind of having to like shed your clothing as it were in front of people that you exactly. that you've just met yeah and you really like those people I think I was lucky with the group that I was in and that in that we did form a, such a good bond as a group but I can imagine that if if the even if there was one person in the group that um was more difficult or made things tricky or you couldn't trust it would be very difficult to to get to that point where you can share stuff and then genuinely take the feedback and know that it's coming from a good place and know that everyone's trying to help each other improve and um Mm. so once you write your novel you get your agent they send your book to your editors. Tell us about what happened. Can, how did that progress for you to, towards the publication of um, How to Be a Good Wife and that experience, really, of, of the publication of your first book? So I wrote the first draft of How to Be a Good Wife when I was doing my master's. Um, so that was over a year. At the end of the master's, Ben and I, my husband now, he wasn't my husband then, um, moved to Australia. And when we moved there... Um, Toby Edie's uh, literary agent said when you finish your novel send it to us so about a month after I got to Australia I sent them my novel and that was probably the scariest moment of my whole writing career actually because that was sending it to professional people that I knew as well that I'd worked with and I had no idea really whether it was good enough or or whether it was any good and they had no inkling of what the book was about they hadn't seen any no. initial I mean, drafts okay okay I might have given them some kind of elevator pitch at some point if they'd asked me but I, I'm, I would imagine it would have been a very convoluted poor mm-hmm. editor <laughs> pitch at that point so um so I sent the book to them then and then they got back in touch with me and said that they really liked it well actually I think it was when I came back to London so I think it was about two months later so that must have been an excruciating couple of months and then <laughs> we went out for lunch and they said oh we, re- we really like it and we'd like to take it on and so then I was like oh great so you know I've got an agent and now I'm going to get published next week and then um what actually happened was we worked on the book for two years while I was living in Australia um and then they sent it to 14 UK publishers um and one of them wanted to buy it it's amazing. And two years to edit your book. I mean, it's kind of, I remember that time because, um, again, for the benefit of the listeners, Emma and I were also living in Australia at the same it's time. Weird, isn't it? we, <laughs> we basically have a very mirrored life. Um, and we were living in the same place at the same time, which was an awesome experience. Um, and I remember that time, you know, it was a, 
it was a long process that and like you say you sort of think of editing as like somebody reads it says yeah it's really good um you know like I'll just tweak this just tweak that but two years of that backwards and forwards is was a complete um surprise to me if I'm completely honest about yeah, how <laughs> involved the editing process actually is and how many how much you change and I can remember you saying that you know you scrap whole bits of the yeah, book whole and... characters all sorts I mean that that's all your decision though and I, I do think there's a kind of a, a myth there that the agent or publisher or whoever it is says oh you need to change this or it won't be published or it's, it's more that they just ask you the right questions like for example if there's a scene and they say I don't really believe that the main character would do that in that scene it doesn't feel very realistic and then you have to think to yourself as the author okay either a do I know what that character is doing in that scene and why? And if I do, I need to make it clearer. And or B, um, I don't know the answer to that question. So there's a major problem there. And what? How do I solve that problem? So it's more that they 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 tease out the best way that you can write that book, and they can do that because they've got perspective on it, whereas you don't always have perspective when you're in the middle of it. I'm really interested as to how you come up with your ideas for a book because I think a lot of people would love to write a book but actually producing an idea that will carry you through 80,000 words or 100,000 words or whatever it is 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 hard very very hard and your books are so your first book how to be a good wife was a kind of psychological quite dark novel um set in Scandinavia and your second book the last photograph which I adore it was about a war photographer in the Vietnam war how do you how did those things come to you and how do at what point do you know that you're going to have enough there to develop into a plot that's going to create an entire novel ems so there's this two different ways that both of those books came about how to be a good wife um i just started writing it um, I had no idea what I was doing. I still don't really know what I'm doing. I just start writing and uh, I get this feeling where I see something or I think with How to Be a Good Wife, it was that um, I'd been visiting Ben's family and something happened there that made me think, oh, that's interesting. And then that co coincided with me seeing a documentary about something. And then I started writing Marta's character and it was just the, the opening scene of the book where she's sitting having a, a cigarette in her kitchen. Um, that that I just I just started writing about a woman that was having a cigarette in her kitchen but it was like a secret and I didn't really know why I was writing about that but then um and then I just teased out what was happening and the book just ca carried on with how to be a wife from Marta's character I didn't really know what was going to happen and then the last photograph I obviously knew that how to be a good wife had been published by that point and I I was then a writer in inverted commas so I knew I had to write another book and I had this huge opportunity to write another book which I which was amazing so then I thought well what do I want to write about and at school I'd been interested in war photography um Don McCullen's collection of photographs was my founding book so I thought why don't I write about that and then did a lot of research decided to write about the Vietnam War um and then visited Vietnam and did a lot of research that really felt like a gift that I got to choose what I wanted to do that book but that meant that I wrote the book quite differently because I was pl planning it quite carefully before I was writing it because it was all historical I had to know a lot of detail before I could even start forming the characters really because I had to know what, what had happened in real life and base some of it on that um, whereas How to Be a Good Wife really just came out of my head and I think in my opinion the you get the best work 
um, when it does just come from nowhere. And I'm not saying I'm not saying anything negative about the last photograph because I'm super proud of that in its in its own right. But I think that it, for me, it feels more organic and it feels more like it's coming from somewhere deep within me, which I think is what writing should be about. If it's just something where I'm like, I've got this feeling that I need to write that, and I don't know why. Mm. They're very different novels. I mean, I love both of them, but they are very different books, very different styles, very different kind of textures, and and there's a there's different a very different narrative associated with both of them, which really fascinates me that because I think some authors have a style which carries them through. If you think about, you know, John Grisham or Stephen mm-hmm. King or whatever, you you know, you have a very kind of very kind of distinct style about them, whereas your books have been so different, which I am always amazed by and just think is absolutely fantastic. Um so just along the way, I'm just going to touch on something else because your career has been quite fantastic that during your research for the last photograph you also set up a teaching charity in Vietnam Ems. Um can you just speak a little bit about that? Because I love that you went to do some research, became a teacher and then you'd set up an organization <laughs> to teach English in Vietnam at I mean, the same time. When you say it like that, it just feels like a rather oddly. Um so when I went to Vietnam, the first time Ben and I went, we travelled around the country um for about two weeks it was basically like a a normal holiday where you just go to different places I knew I was looking for somewhere to set my book um but I didn't know exactly where and then we went to this quite rural remote area um a town called Comtum and when we were there we met um a guy who taught English and he invited us around to his house for tea um because we'd been on a tour with his brother it wasn't just like a random thing in the street um and I said to him, because he had this English school at his house, I said, um, when was the last time you had a native English speaker come out here to help you? And he laughed and said that there hadn't been a native English speaker that had come out to that town for 20 years. And I was kind of blown away by that. Um, And my brain started to tick because I knew I wanted to go back to that area and, and potentially set my book there. And I had a man here who spoke fluent English, which is quite rare in that area, had been there during the war. and also needed my help because I could I could help him with his school and he could help me by telling me stories about what happened during the war. So it was like a bit of a one of those fortuitous things where I was like, and then I got home and sent him an email and he was like, yeah, definitely come. And so I went there for three months. And then when I left, I was like, it would be a shame if no one comes for another 20 years. So I just set up a very basic website uh, and and a social media thing just and and just to, just to encourage other people to go and, and we did have kind of a stream of volunteers after that um I don't run it anymore because it got quite tricky with um the government there in terms of foreigners coming coming in and them thinking it was a bit suspicious and I didn't want to put the guy that I was um helping in any danger but I do think another volunteer's gone recently and I think she might be restarting it tell me then about your transition to your new role um, as a farmer, because this is one of my favourite stories of all my friends. Um, of someone who we were just discussing before we started recording this about how we grew up in an area that we thought was moderately rural, but we went to school in central Manchester. And actually, we thought we were quite country people, but we really weren't. So tell me a bit about... Um, your how this came about with getting into farming and all of that sort of thing Em. so um I met Ben who's now my husband at uni in Edinburgh and he is a he well he was, grew up on a farm so he was a farmer which was always a bit of a novelty thing at uni 
um, that, you know, I'd never met a farmer before. Um, and we ended up starting, started dating and he's, he's, we were talking about where we were from and I said, oh, I'm from the countryside. Um, you know, I grew up in the countryside and blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, right. Okay. And then, uh, you know, a bit more time went along and we went to visit each other in our home areas and Ben came to visit me and he was like, you're a townie. This isn't the countryside. I was like, yes, it is. What do you mean? You know, it's the countryside. It's 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 near Manchester, yeah, but it's it's in the countryside. I mean, there are fields around it, but it's it's a town, really. Um, so then I went to visit Ben, and I was like, oh right, this is the countryside. <laughs> this is the country. Okay. Yeah, this is the, this is what the country is. This is a farm in the middle of nowhere. Um, never been on a farm before, uh, apart from like the kind of farm where you go to feed a lamb when you're. Um, a child which actually now ironically we run but that was the kind of farm that I would have gone to which was more like a public facing farm um so yeah I was quite different from from Ben's home farm (laughs) exactly and I think that's that's how we ended up transferring into what we do now Uh, that feeling that I had when I first went to the farm and being in the lambing shed and seeing life or death really um in quite a raw way um that feeling that I had is is why we run this business that we run which is a free range egg farm and a farm shop because it's so grassroots and it connects directly with the produce that we're creating but also the customer can um learn stuff about about farming when they're here and and purchase products straight from the farm and how um did you find the sort of transition into those you know dealing with the sort of life and death side of thing and because i think the the level of disconnect between people in towns uh, and the countryside and people's understanding of where their food comes from and what is associated with food production has really escalated over the last probably 10 to 20 years I suppose people are more disconnected than ever from from the countryside and rural the rural community um how how would you describe your transition from being a quote-unquote townie as Ben put it into into that life um I, I still find it endlessly fascinating um I'm definitely not a practical person naturally and that's something that I've had to learn and I'm still learning all the time um luckily Ben is super practical um so Ben is kind of, Mr practical <laughs> yeah he's like ridiculously practical I think that's why running the business together works and also um running a farming business together works because um I'm not practical but I've got people skill. Uh, I'm not saying Ben is not people skill but <laughs> um I'm not practical but I'm I'm really interested in people because of being a writer and that's where that all came from is being fascinated with people's personalities and things like that so I love the customer side he is the detail person he makes sure that we're making money that um we're really seeing things the way that they actually are whereas I quite often have rose tinted glasses on which is the reason why I'm quite a jolly person but it's also not that helpful when I just can't I, I can't see that something needs changing in the shop or whatever because I've seen it too many times before or I haven't noticed um so he's got the attention to detail whereas I'm I'm more kind of broad brush whilst I think Emma is maybe doing herself down here slightly as she and Ben are two of the smartest most focused people I know the point she's making is really important that it takes all sorts to make a business successful and recognising your strengths and weaknesses, particularly when you're working with your spouse, your partner or a close friend, is vital to ensure success. The reality is that we're not all good at the same things. Some people aren't the numbers people, they're more creative. 
Some people aren't very creative. They like the detail. Working out what makes you tick and what your best areas are will help you to fly at work. What you now have is uh, you've bought a farm and you are farming um, free-range hens, as you said, and you've got a, a farm shop. That business has gone from strength to strength in the time that you've got it. And you very pleased to say that in the last week, you've just won a couple of awards at the farm shop. And you now um, have been speaking at the Women in Farming conference. How have you kind of developed that business since you bought it? So we took over the business just over three years ago. It's called Minskip Farm Shop. Um, and it's in North Yorkshire between Harrogate, Leeds and York. Um, and when we took over, the previous owners had been here for 38 years. They'd brought up their family here. They had built the business up from basically selling veg and eggs at the side of the road to where the shop is now. Um, so we took on an existing business, which meant that we also took on a loyal customer base, which was amazing. So um, what we did really was um, slightly add some new producers, um, hone the stuff that the previous owners have been doing, which was mainly vegetables and eggs, um, and rearrange the shop and also marketing. So there wasn't much marketing that happened before we were here. A lot of people didn't even know we were here. So it was it was really a case of getting on social media and banging the drum and doing as much PR as we could to kind of get people to know who we were and what we were doing. And in terms of the women in farming, can you just talk to me a little bit about what you've been doing with that, Ems? Yeah, so one of our customers invited me to talk at the Women in Farming conference. So cool. Society, I know. And I said in my talk that I did yesterday that I I was I was shocked that she'd asked me, but also that I don't really feel like a farmer because I'm not from a farming background. So I do feel a bit like an imposter when I do things like <laughs> the Women in Farming conference because I'm not uh, from that background. Um, and most people that are in the farming world were either born into it or they've married into it, which is obviously what I've done. Um, I asked people to put their hands up yesterday and I, I'd say 75% of people in the room, there were about 140 people there, were born into it and maybe an additional 20% were married into it and there weren't many other people in that room. And I think that's a bit of a problem um, because I think that the 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 generation that are farming now are getting older um because the price has been driven down of all of all farming produce has been driven down quite considerably um by big retailers um and farmers don't really have any control over the price um it's becoming sub-economic even for one person to run a farm depending on the size of it but to then bring another generation into it it becomes quite tricky and i think we need to encourage more younger people to to come into farming and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have loads of land and buy a farm and do all this stuff I mean there are loads of things you can do which are really um grassroots um similar to what we're doing and um you know connect directly to the customer so that you make sure you do get a decent price for what you're selling um and that's kind of what we want to do with the industry really is is encourage more people in and I mean, it's kind of, there's two things I was going to ask you off the back of what you were just saying there. The first being, we said before about the kind of loss of um, context of people buying food as to where it's come from. But there's a counter argument to that, which is that people at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum um, have difficulty affording food that comes at a premium from being from small producers that's locally produced. Yeah. Do you think that in time it would be possible for food to be produced locally and economically sufficient sufficiently economically that 
that you'd be able to be serving quite a, a large community in the lower socioeconomic band yeah I, do, I definitely do and I think that that, that the, the solution to that is going direct to the farms because the reason why farmers don't get very much money for the products now but uh, and they're, they're also sold cheap, cheaply in supermarkets or other big retailers is because um, there are middlemen in between that process um, whereas if you're buying direct from the farm that's cut out and for the farmer you get a bigger margin on the products which at least makes your business economic because a lot of businesses if you're not at a certain scale and you're selling to um where you're in a contract like you're selling to a a wholesaler you won't be uh, you won't be making money the free range egg industry they they publish a magazine every month called the ranger and (laughs) (laughs) the first few months we received that magazine i was like my life is what what is going on this is so surreal we receive a magazine called the ranger every month um but they publish what has big- happened to me yeah, exactly <laughs> i never predicted this they publish figures at the back of that magazine every single month about the finances of running a free range egg producer with pr- production unit with and without finance and most of the time those figures are in the red and you're just like this is this is just this is on a much bigger scale than we're doing it as well we've got one of the smallest free range flocks in the uk have you? Okay. Yeah, and it's, and we've got six thousand hens, so most of them would be about thirty-two thousand. Because um, that sounds, I mean, six thousand hens that sounds like a lot of birds, but actually, proportionally for chicken, you know, egg production in general, that's minuscule, and free-range egg production, that's quite small, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's tiny. I mean, apart from like smaller hobby farms, we're probably one of the smallest smallest one that's uh, sort of smallest lots in the UK. And are you supplying to other people apart from your own farm shop, Em, or is that an area of your business that you're wholesaling to other people? So we sell about um, 75% of our eggs at the moment to supermarkets. Do you? Which okay. is why I know cool. in detail how um, it's great. It's absolutely great to to do that because it means that, you know, you're getting a regular price for your pro- product. And it means that, you know, um, they're definitely going somewhere. You've not got any waste or anything. Um, but if we didn't have the shop as well, it wouldn't be economic for us to do that. No. And I mean, it's quite interesting when you sort of think about your career and the way you're talking, what you've essentially done is gone from doing something incredibly creative and, um, you know, really quite isolating from time to time. I think it'd be fair to say about your writing career to doing something that's, um, basically running quite a hard-nosed business in order to create a profit from a product and that is quite a difficult thing Uh, you know a lot of small businesses fail because they are not economic within the first three years um you what are your plans to kind of expand them and how are you taking the business from strength to strength so um our plans are we're actually expanding the shop at the moment so it will be about double the size in a month's time um and then after that, we're we're adding a farm kitchen, which is going to be the world's first egg restaurant on an egg farm. So the Amazing. idea with that, yeah, okay. the idea with that is uh, that obviously the hens are here; they lay they lay their eggs every day, and we're going to make amazing dishes, amazing Instagrammable dishes out of those eggs um, as soon as they're laid. So people can come here and and you know see the hens ranging, see how happy they are, buy the eggs in the shop, and then eat the eggs in amazing creative ways in the farm kitchen and do you want to just finish by telling me ems where people can find you both online or in real life if they want to come and visit 
So uh, Minskip Farm Shop, which is the farm shop that my husband and I run, is in North Yorkshire. And the website is www.minskipfarmshop.com. Minskip's M-I-N-S-K-I-P. Cool. And I'll put all the links to your social media and stuff on the show page so people can find that and go and check you out. And if you are driving up the A1, uh, do stop because it's brilliant. So if you're in the UK and you find yourself in the Northeast, then do pop in to visit Emma and Ben. I know they would love to meet anyone that's listened to this podcast. Likewise, if you are short of a good read over the autumn, then do pick up Em's books. She writes under her maiden name, Emma Chapman, and I've popped the link to her website on the show notes as well. That's all for this week, though. If you've enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then do please tell a friend as we are always keen for new listeners. If you can find it in your heart to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or give us a shout out on your socials, then I would love you very much as it helps others to find us. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and our website is www.smashingtheceiling.com. We'll see you next week.